Welcome to uh, Calvary Chapel, Grants Pass. And this evening, Pastor Denny is uh, not here this evening. He'll be back on uh, the weekend. And uh, Pastor Denny has invited uh, Bob Sweat to come up and share the word with us. Bob is coming from Bakersfield, California, just to come up here and, uh, and just share the word and his testimony and just be a blessing to us. So let's welcome him tonight. Thank you. I'm hooked up. Great. It's good to be reminded how beautiful Grants Pass is. God allowed me to have 11 wonderful years in Oregon, Central Oregon, and then up in the Portland area. Probably the, among the greatest years of my life. I, I left many a lure in the Deschutes River <laughs> trying to get those steelhead trout. And I, I remember the first time I came up here from Los Angeles to Oregon and Somebody told me, I love to fish in down in L.A. area, but fish are different down there. And they, they, they told me up here that they throw everything back that's under six inches. And I said, what? Well, I, I do too. And the guy says, well, that's between the eyes. So, well, first time I hooked into a steelhead, I, I realized how true that was. Well, well, why am I here? Why, why is Bob Sweat, somebody that you've never met in your life, uh, from Bakersfield, California, of all places, why in the world is he up in Grants Pass to speak tonight to a group of people he's never met? Well, I'll tell you. I, I've got a story to tell you, and I'm going to be as transparent tonight as I possibly can. And what I'm going to tell you is a very painful part of my life. And also tell you how God wonderfully has ministered to me through that pain, through His restoration. And I want you to know up front that what, what I want to share with you tonight is, this isn't about personalities. It's about a process. It's about a topic of what happens when you are called by God to do something and you do it and you blow it. God called me into ministry, I'll date myself, 1963 I was sitting in the Los Angeles Coliseum listening to Billy Graham. A long time ago. And God made it very clear that evening that He wanted me to pursue the pastoral ministry. I was 18 years old. Now you know how old I am. It took me a few years to get serious, but I finally did, and God allowed me to have 22 years speaking in the pulpit, something that I dearly loved and still love to this very day. And I also want to make clear that, that ministry, pastoral ministry, and maybe this is more of an opinion, Pastoral ministry to me is a calling of God. I remember debating that topic with some fellow ministers of other denominations. And we'd get together and, you know, just uh, talk shop. And, and occasionally the topic would come up about, well, when did you enter the ministry? And I, this one gentleman in particular, time after time, he said, well, I chose to be a minister. And I used to say, Bill, it's not something you choose. It's something God calls you to do. And I, and I believe that. It, I, if I would have made my choice to do something, I would have been a lawyer. That's what I would have done. But God called me that September evening in, in, in 1963 to enter the pastor, the pastoral ministry. And that same God who calls you can also take you out. Sixteen years ago, a little over 16 years ago, after 22 years of ministry, a wife who was faithful to me, who loved me, served with me, three wonderful children, I allowed lust to end a marriage and a ministry. 
I allowed desires that I had of the flesh to take away something God had called me to do and something that I loved doing. And when I went through it, the strange part of it, I I look back at it now and, and I grieve and I still grieve. But when it was happening, you know something? I thought I had it coming to me. Because I had every excuse in the world why what I was doing was okay. And I justified it. And the thing that really hurts is that friends who had known me for years, Friends who had known me since my my days as a teenager shortly after becoming a, a Christian tried so hard to minister to me. They confronted me and I would have no part of it because I was stuck. You know, Jeremiah declared the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately corrupt. That is so true. And, and I know it's a doctrinal thing, and I don't want to get into theology and doctrine, but, but to me, that, that corrupt heart is always with us this side of heaven, and we're only free with it when we're with God. And it's always there, ready to rear its ugly head. Now, you might disagree, and that's fine. I don't believe in the eradication of sin, the nature of sin, but I believe it's there. And it can happen to anyone. And it happened to me. And as I said, it it ended my marriage. It ended my calling. And I spent about three years of my life in anger and in shame. And I'll talk about that a little bit later. And I started attending. I you know the thing about that is, as much as I tried to run from God during that during that time, God just continued to tug. And he wouldn't let go of me. And I started attending a little church in the community that I had, was hiding out in. And, you know, I had no contact with my children, very little, I should say, because of the guilt and the shame that accompanies that type of thing. I had no contact with, with my friends that I'd had for years, 30 plus years, some of them. And I began to attend this little country church. And I sat there Sunday after Sunday and God started dealing with me and started started just tugging at my heart and started just saying, Bob, it's time to start doing something. I, I eventually remarried and I remarried a wonderful woman that I, I loved dearly and a woman who had five daughters. And... Uh, The pastor of that church took me aside one day and he says, you know, we really need to do something about this. And that began for me the road back to God and a right relationship with Him. For me, it was a long road. For me, the hurt and the pain and the agony over that, quite frankly, hasn't even gone away to this day. And I don't think it ever will and I don't think it should. Because, see, things will never be the same again. God has allowed me. I, I am no longer in the pulpit ministry. I, have, I am in ministry, but to a different degree. And God does allow me to stand in the pulpit as He, as he has this evening and teach, as I'm going to in a moment. And, and, I, and I love that and I miss that. But before I could get to that point, there were things I really needed to do in my life in order to earn that right again. And so, I began to meet with the elders of that small church. Little by little, we started going through steps. And then I discovered and was led by God. There were these things I laid out, things that I needed to do in my own life. Things that I need to, and I I prioritized them. And and it, it... it was humiliating, and it should have been humiliating. And I'm not whining to you because every bit of what I had to go through, I, I deserved every bit of, of, every bit of it, excuse me, and I needed to do it, and I had to do it for it to be complete. 
And so one by one, I, 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 I went to my children and I poured out my heart to them. And I praise God that I have three grown children now who love me in spite of me. You know how important that is? You know, Christmases are never the same. They're the consequences. They're never the same. But you know they love me. And they've forgiven me. I, I went to my ex-wife. And I sought her forgiveness. I went to the church. To the elders of that church. And wrote a letter to the congregation of the church where I was pastoring when this happened. And sought their forgiveness. I went to my denomination. I was not part of Calvary Chapel then. But I went to my denomination and I wrote my superintendent. And he wrote me the most wonderful letter back. Expressing his total, complete forgiveness. And little by little, God started allowing me to do things again. And it started teaching a Sunday school class and then it would build upon that. But there were steps that I had to take that I couldn't bypass. I want you to open your Bibles with me to Psalm 51. There are not many instances in the Scripture you're going to find with moral failure. And of course, David is the prominent one. And I'm sure you all know the story of David and his sin with Bathsheba. He was not only an adulterer, but an accomplice to murder because he had her husband killed. And David lived with that sin in his life for about a year. He lived with that sin in his life for a year. And I can tell you, I lived with the sin in my life for just a month or two. And it was horrible. The only thing that I did right during that time was stepping out of the pulpit. That was it. On my own accord. And because I could not stand up in front of my people Sunday after Sunday teaching them the Word of God when I was a liar myself. So I... But, but David lived that way for a year until the prophet Nathan confronted him. And David repented. And I want you to see his heart here. I want you to see in these few verses that I want to share with you the progression of restoration that David went through. And I know this is a familiar psalm, but, but listen to it again. Verse 1, have mercy upon me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the multitude of your tender mercies. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. There's a repentive heart. There was a man who finally came to a place in his life when he recognized, and again, he was living a lie for a year. And he came to a point where he recognized everything that was before him. Blot all these things out. Have mercy upon me, dear God. Cleanse me from all of that. Wash me from all of that. And here's the step. I acknowledge, verse 3, for I acknowledge my transgressions. You know what? I lived for three years in denial about mine. And it's only when you come to a point in your life where you acknowledge that you are wrong. God can't do anything. God couldn't do anything with me until I admitted that I was wrong, until I stopped making excuses, until I stopped saying, well, my, my wife didn't satisfy me in this way, you know, until those excuses stopped and I acknowledged that I wasn't the wounded one here. I was the one who did the wounding. And that's exactly what David is doing here. He is acknowledging his transgression. And then he makes this statement, my sin is always before me. You, oh, how true that was. That sin was before him for that whole year. And I'm going to do a step further. And, you know, I'll admit here, I could be wrong. This might be a little bit of um, 
reading into it, but but I'm, I'm only citing my experience. I believe that David's sin was <clears throat> before him the rest of his life. The rest of his life. Did God totally forgive him? You bet he did. Was he a man after God's own heart? You bet he was. But I'll tell you, through my own experience, because he was just a man just like me, that I don't think a day went by that that sin wasn't before him. And you all know the story of David, and nothing was ever the same for that man again. He remained the king, but nothing was the same again. See, there's consequences. David was not removed. And by the way, I used to use that argument. When it came time for me and going through the restorative process, I used to say, okay, I've confessed. Uh, you know, I'd, I'd say to my, my pastor, okay, let me preach now. I've confessed. And, and it doesn't work that way. It doesn't work that way. And I'd say, well, look at David. I mean, he not only committed adultery, but he was an accomplice to murder. I didn't do that. And he, he didn't even lose his kingdom. Big difference here. And, and the difference is, number one, God made a covenant with David before this whole thing with Bathsheba. He made a covenant, and God wasn't going to break that covenant with David in spite of David. Number two, David was not a priest. He was not a prophet. He was a king. So it, it's, it's it, it mixing apples and oranges. And then he says in verse 4, Against you, you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight, that you may be found just when you speak and blameless when you judge. Behold, I, I brought forth iniquity in my sin, and in sin my mother conceived me. Behold, you desire truth in the inward parts, and, and in the hidden part you make me to know wisdom. And he uses these expressions. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I'll be whiter than snow. Make me hear joy and gladness that my bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out my iniquities. And people, those are words of a man who's broken. That man was broken. Verse 10, create in me a clean heart. Renew a steadfast spirit within me. What does that indicate? He didn't have a steadfast spirit. He wanted it renewed. His spirit was a wavering spirit, probably ready maybe to do the same thing all over again. But renew that steadfast spirit. And again, that only comes when you admit your transgression when you come before God with a broken, contrite spirit and are ready for Him to do what He needs to do instead of you worrying about what you need to do. Verse 12, Restore to me the joy of your salvation and hold me in your generous spirit. And then I want you to see this last verse I want to read. Verse 13, Then... I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will be converted to you. Do you notice that wasn't at the top? You see the progression there? See, David didn't start right off by saying, okay, God, I'm sorry. Now, put me back up there so I can teach sinners the ways of God again. No, he had to go through these steps. He had to acknowledge his transgressions. He had to desire a clean heart. He had to, to, to call and ask God and plead with God to restore to him the joy of his salvation. Then, only then, can he once again teach transgressors the way. There is a progression to restoration. Now, there's an argument today. And I'm not going to get into that argument as to whether or not people should even be restored. 
uh, to the pastoral ministry when, when they are sinned more, when they sin morally, or when they when they sin uh, any type of sin. Uh, you know, they're they're you're hard pressed to find that you cannot be. Although, having said that, you do remember Moses. And, and, and Moses certainly is an example of someone who was not uh, restored to leadership. I mean, Moses spent 40 years. You know, I, I, I used to teach this and I'd think, my, my gosh, God, you're so unfair. This man for 40 years put up with that whining and complaining in the wilderness and he didn't even get to go to the promised land. Well, you know why? Because he sinned. He disobeyed God. He struck the stone. And and, and praise God that God was gracious enough to take him up to the mountain and say, look at that land. This is the land that I promised your forefathers, but but Moses, you can't go there. God didn't even have to do that. He showed his mercy and his grace by just allowing Moses to see it, but he didn't get to take him. And we're told that Moses died. He was still strong in sight. You know, the indication there, he was still a healthy man. But God took him. So there's an indication right there that, that restoration to leadership doesn't all the time happen. I think the issue, I think the issue here is character. Character. The Bible calls pastors to be Above reproach. The Bible calls pastors to be examples to the flock as to how one should be. He doesn't call a pastor to be perfect because no one's perfect. But he does expect the pastor that when the pastor is wrong, they can show the people how to handle it when you're wrong. Now, I want to give some mis... When, when, um, when I was asked to come up here, um, Denny wanted to know, well, what are, you, what, are you going to, what are you going to say? That's pretty typical Calvary Chapel. I, I spent a few numbers of years in Calvary Chapel, and they just won't let anybody have their pulpit, and that's good. And he didn't know me from Adam. He only knew me because of Bill Ritchie. And... Um, so anyway, I, I, I emailed Denny back, and I, this is what I want to say about restoration. Point one, and I've already shared it, restoration begins with true brokenness. True brokenness. I, I, you know, I'm still broken. I, and I don't say that to be boastful. I say that with all honesty and candor. I'm still broken. And I probably will be broken till the Lord takes me home because I need to be reminded of what I did. Now, I know that I've had people tell me, Bob, that is wrong. Uh, six years ago, my former denomination asked me to come back to the pastorate. And I, I went down there to talk to them about that. And I, and I sat there and they, they just wanted to make a few things uh, clear. And so I, I shared and I, I mean, I just, I, I wept. I wept as as they asked me these questions about have I dealt with I wept. And shortly after that, I I, I get a phone call from the superintendent. He says, you know, Bob, you need to get over it. See, the fact is not that I don't believe that Jesus has forgiven me. I do. And I know that when, when I stand before God, God will not bring any of that up. Praise God. He will not throw one thing in my face because I believe if if what I believe about Scriptures is true, He's forgotten what I remember. But see again, there are consequences. For David, my sin is always before me. I'm going to read here a Scripture in a moment that that talks about the the shame that never leaves in, in, in moral failure. In fact, I'll read that right now since I, I'm thinking about it. And, and this is a, a, a real key. 
Proverbs 6, 32-35. And this is speaking about moral failure. Solomon writes, Whoever commits adultery with a woman lacks understanding. He who does so destroys his own soul. Wounds and dishonor he will get, and his reproach. Now, some translations use the word shame there. His reproach or shame will not be wiped away. Now, I, excuse me, I've read commentators who, who say, well, that's dealing with, it's talking about the, the husband of the, of the woman that the affair was committed with, and it's talking about his reproach with that man. I, I don't think so. I think that shame and that reproach will always be there. I think the distrust. There are places I could go today where people will not trust me. They will not trust me. In in spite of all I've been through, they won't trust me. And you know what? I don't hold that against them. That's a result of my sin. That's not their problem. Now, if they don't have forgiveness for me, that's another, that, that becomes their problem. But see, trust. I violated trust. And that's what happens. When a pastor fails morally, they violate trust. So, true repentance has to happen. And, and brokenness, true brokenness, please understand this, is not just saying you're sorry. I'm a principal now at a Christian school. I've been, I've been doing this for the last uh, eight years. And every day, every day I'll have a child come in who's been sent there by the principal or a yard duty aide. And I, whether they hit somebody or were rude in the way they talked, they'll sit there and, Mr. Sweat, I'm sorry. And some of them will just sigh. They'll sob. Most of them will sob. And I'll tell you, most of them, they're sorry because they got caught. That's what they're sorry about. You know, words are cheap. Words are cheap. And I'm sorry are two of the cheapest words in the American la- in the English language. But then one day I had this little little girl... And she was only a kindergartner, five years old. And she she came in there and she just started tearing up and the tears would roll down. And I said, what happened? Well, I hit so-and-so. And and Mr. Sweat, I'm so sorry. And I know Jesus wouldn't want me to act that way. And, and 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 Mr. Sweat, I'm going to go up to I'm going to go up to that person when I leave, and I'm going to, I didn't have to say anything for her to do. She knew what she was going to do. You know why? Because she was sorry. She was sorry. So brokenness isn't just saying you're sorry. Um, Alexander McLaren, the great expositor of years past, made this statement. I, I love this quote. He wrote, "Jesus Christ." Ask each one of us, not for obedience primarily, nor for repentance, not for vows, not for conduct, but for a heart. And that being given, all the rest will follow. I hope you heard that. Not for vows, not for repentance, but just a heart. Because see, when God has our heart, all the rest falls in line. You know that conversation that Jesus had with Peter after Peter denied Christ three times? And you know the story where he has the dialogue with him, Peter, do you love me? And, uh, you know, the proper exegesis of that scripture is that Jesus is saying, Peter, do you agape me? And Peter says, no, I phileo you and different words for love. But, But that last time that Peter was asked, he says, Lord, you know all things. That's all we have. And, and I have to use this a little bit of holy imagination here. I think that broke Peter. I think Peter said, okay, you've got my heart. You've got my heart. Because when Jesus has our heart, all the rest will follow. 
And some people just don't want to give that. Because, see, that, that takes them out of the equation. Next, the purpose of restoration. This is a key one. The purpose of restoration is not to restore one to ministry. That is not the purpose of restoration. See, I had that all wrong when I started, but that isn't the purpose of restoration. The purpose of restoration is to restore that person or that person to restore themselves in a relationship with Jesus Christ. That's the purpose of restoration. What happens after that? That's up to God. That's totally up to God. Next, another key. Sin does not necessarily take away the gifts that God gives. I can tell you, in the, in the heat of my sin, I could still stand behind a pulpit and teach the Word of God and do a pretty good job. And have people leave and say, boy, Pastor, you really nailed that Scripture on the head this morning. It doesn't take away the gift. What it does do is it takes away our privilege to use it. It can do that. Well, it does do that. And then restoration should include those who were affected by the sin. Who else was affected? I mean, so many times the person is so, they're so pushed into restoring themselves. Well, how about their wife or ex-wife? How about kids? How about people in a church? How about that? Restoration needs to take place there. And, you know, sometimes restoration needs to take place in the church that person pastored between those people and God because they were so far away from God because of what their pastor did. That was true with me. That was true for me. There were people that I ministered to in that church, but when I left and it was, and it was found out why I left, they stopped attending the church. They were so hurt. How about those people? See, we can be so selfish thinking about ourselves. Restoration should include strict, strict accountability. Strict accountability. While it's true that that God's forgiveness is complete, it is. There are consequences that follow sin. And I've already talked about David's. See, it's not an issue of forgiveness. It's an issue of trust. And a pastor who falls morally, for any matter that is, has lost trust. And that trust needs to be rebuilt and restored if it can be at all. And then restoration does not happen overnight. That's true. Restoration does not happen overnight. I'd like to share with you, these aren't my ideas, these are some things that I went through, and really this is the, the, uh, from a person by the name of Alan Schaefer, who, uh, I don't know if he still is, but he was uh, an instructor at Moody Bible College, and um, here are some questions and that, that he asks. Can the fallen leader's spouse say with a high degree of certainty that they trust their spouse again? That should be included in restoration. Can the fallen leader's peers trust him again? Can those whom he ministered to say with a high degree of certainty that they can trust his character and counsel again? Does the church feel comfortable submitting to the spiritual leadership of one restored? Has the fallen leader had sufficient time to prove his character? And again, I say that's important. Quite frankly, it has taken me ten years to go through this. Now, that might not be true for everybody. Has the fallen leader been able to prove the that the issue that caused the fall has been dealt with. If the issue that caused it hasn't been dealt with, then it's going to be done all over again. 
Has the fallen leader been able to exhibit a consistent spiritual walk for a period of time sufficient to prove that he is exercising the spiritual disciplines of prayer and study of the Word? Can the fallen leader say with all conviction that what he did was sin? And make no excuses for it. And then can the society in which the fallen leader lives be able to once again see him as a model of character and virtue? Those are demands. that are Those are tough. But you know it should be. Restoration should not be easy. If restoration is easy, I can make this statement and I'll stand by it and I will not back down. If restoration is easy, it is not restoration. So, uh, I've uh, laid it out for you how I feel. I did tell Denny when I wrote him initially that I'd be willing to field questions. That's scary. (laughs) But, uh, you know, I want to do that. Um, One of the things that God told me when He allowed me to start ministering again is, well, I, I should put it this way. <laughs> what God told me is, is okay, what I asked God. I said, uh, if there's any way that I can ever be a help to people, to groups, to churches, because of the wrong that I committed, then God, please let me do that. And He's allowed me to do that. And it, and it started about six, seven, eight years ago now. When my former superintendent asked me to come down and speak to a group of pastors about issues of infidelity and, and warning signs, which was neat. I'm down there talking to these men that I once, they were my peers. I worked with them. I knew them well, some of them for 30 years. And it was very hard that day to sit there, them knowing what I did. But nevertheless, after I shared, I had I had one of those men come up and say, I'll never be able to thank you enough because I've got two of those signs going on right now in my life. So if there's any way I can ever be of help, you know, that's that's how God can take something so horrible and make something good out of it. So let me have it. Yes, ma'am. We record this uh, so that we can make uh, it available to people who aren't here. So make sure you speak into the mic, please. Um, what do you say to someone that has fallen and basically they think that there was anointing in their life, so this is what God told them to do, and they they get back in the pulpit again, like right after they committed? Well, again, again, I, I I'm hesitant. I, I don't I don't like to even use the word anointed. That's that that word is used so much today, and. I, I hear these TV guys use it all the time, and it just makes the hair on my back stand up. I I mentioned earlier the the ability to teach, preach, whatever you want to call it, doesn't necessarily lead because of sin. You might they might be just as good. I mean, they they might be able to give an altar call and have tons of people come down. The, the question the question. The question is not whether they can, it's whether they should. That's the question. And, and, and I, I just feel that they shouldn't. Over here. You said you had there were signs and you told the pastors that you uh, ministered to. Can you tell us what those signs were that you expressed to them? Of infidelity? Yeah, that you said for to watch for. Oh, that's a whole other issue. Uh, very quickly. I think, I think it's, number one, how, how a woman... I'll tell you what I can see in men. Number one, I, can, I, I usually can tell by the way a man looks at a woman, by the way a man hugs a woman... You know, there's a lot of hugging in churches, but I think I think there's I think there's can be real problems with that, and I can usually I can I, I mean this I, I 
I, I'm not claiming to be a prophet or anything, but I, I, I just, this is born to be true. The way a man looks at a woman, what he says, and suggestive talk, that is in uh, the, the, the tone of fun. I, I mentioned to uh, Mike, who picked me up at the airport, that my, the, the uh, I'll just say a friend, a very close friend of mine years ago, he, he was just a, the first time I met him, at the church that when I started attending, I just noticed, man, he, a woman would walk by and he'd just follow him, you know, with his eyes. And uh, and so my wife and I became very close to him and his wife. And he used to always like to just touch my wife. And one, one day he says, hey, Roberta, come over here and press your body up against mine. That, now, that's pretty blatant. But I suspected it before then. And uh, after, and I, I, I'd been just on the verge of confronting him. But after he said that, I called him and I said, I, "Let's have let's have coffee." And I confronted him, and he backpedaled. Man, he was like a defensive back trying to cover a receiver. He he backpedaled and backpedaled and, and laughed and says, "Oh no, I just have the highest degree of respect." Well, he had an affair, divorced his wife. You know, so things like that. Um, obvious issues of, of pornography. Uh, see, I have never met anybody. I, I, I let's just make it personal. I didn't wake up one morning and say, "I think I'll have an affair today." It's something that builds, and it builds through. Uh, the communication with your wife breaks down uh, sexually, verbally, and then you start making excuses. And uh, it, it, it isn't something that just all of a sudden happens. It's building over a period of time until, boom, the explosion hits. In fact, see, I go as far to say this. and This is an extreme. I'm certainly not saying this for everybody. But when I talk to pastors... I tell pastors, don't ever counsel a woman. I don't care how good you think you are. Don't ever counsel a woman. And I've had pastors tell me, well, I've been doing it for 22. I did it for 22 years. I did it for 22 years, too. And a pastor should never have a woman in his office alone. That's my personal feeling. I think a, pa- I think a pastor or any adult male needs to be careful that they don't become friendly with another woman to where they feel they can share with them things they'd never share with their wife. Big warning sign. Happens all the time. Because then you're suddenly into this emotional thing. And see, your excuse in. The excuse for the male, or a woman for that matter, is, well, we're not sleeping together. We're not having sex. Well, let me tell you, it's just as bad because it's going to end up there unless you stop it. So I don't... I have acquaintances that are of the opposite sex, but I don't have any close friendships. Any close friendships I have with the coppice of sex is because my wife and I know uh, that we're husband and wives and we do things together like that. That's it. So, any other questions? Yes, ma'am. Let's get the mic. <laughs> how, um, how can a pastor be so blinded when he is so knowledgeable of God's Word? I don't well, get it. Well, it goes back again to what I said, what Jeremiah said, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately corrupt. We ha- There's a battle going on within the minds of all of us. Another sermon, another night to talk about that. But there's a battle that's going on, and, and, and pastors especially. Because, I, you know, if, if Satan can get a hold of the pastor, look what he's got a hold of. And it doesn't matter what you know. All the head knowledge in the world... It doesn't mean anything. You know, the, the Word of God, frontwards, backwards, sideways, and everything. But that's why it's important that you be living it. And it beyond the knowledge of it. See, it's beyond the knowledge of it. It's got to be experiential. I mean, if, if you're walking with the Lord day by day, then you're, you're safe. Because God's got a hold of you. But man, you get off track. You know, it's... So, again, knowledge, I think, I think it's important that pastors certainly have the knowledge of the Word of God, but that, that knowledge isn't going to save them from, from uh, an affair. 
Because, see, you'll make excuses again. You'll make reasons why it's okay. Or it might start something very innocent. My affair started out very innocently. I had a woman. She, she had a creep for a husband. Uh, and, and I just had compassion. A compassion like pastors are supposed to have. And next thing you know, uh, you know, she's coming by my office to see me all the time. Next thing you know, she'll put a card on my desk. I don't want to ever get cards from women. <laughs> uh, that's just how I feel. I, I, I freak out. I'm serious. I got a card from a woman teacher yesterday and it freaked me out. I just... It, uh. <laughs> Anybody else? Back here. Maybe you can give us some information on how we can get past that broken trust when uh, when our pastor is, you know, uh, it's, it's happened in 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 one of our churches here, and and uh, you know, it, it, for some reason, it was a hard. It was like this place I just can't go, you know, in my heart, mm-hmm. and uh, I don't want to know him intimately. I mean, I don't want to know my pastor. It's hard for me to get that close intimate relationship with my pastor like I'm incompetent you know mm-hmm. that I can present, tell him secrets a present pastor because of a past pastor you mean well yeah exactly okay how do we get past that that's a, that is a good question I I think we I think as hard as it might be we have to forgive those people who've hurt us, even if they haven't asked for it. And that's going to help us get on with it. You might not ever trust them again, but you, you need to forgive them. And you, can't, you cannot hold present leadership accountable for what has hurt you in the past. And that that is that's very important. That wouldn't be fair to whatever pastor that is that's trying to lead his people. Uh, it, nevertheless, it's you know it's what comes with the territory. One of the pastors I had in Oregon. This so happens is one of the churches I pastor in Oregon. I followed a pastor who was just oh gosh he was horrible. And it it took me four years to build the people's trust. I mean they were horrible to me and my wife. They were horrible. And finally, you know, they either left or trusted me. So, um, you know, forgiveness is a key. It really is. But at the same time, you just... There, there's, there's a difference between... And I said it earlier. There's a difference between forgiveness and trust. And God calls us to forgive. But trust is earned. He doesn't call us to trust. He calls us to forgive. And when, when we've been betrayed, then, the, then that trust has to be earned back. It's just not automatic. God does not expect you to be a dispensing machine of trust by someone just coming up and putting a quarter in you. And then you ooze out trust. People have to prove themselves. And, you know, I, 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 God has, I mean, God has blessed me so much. You know, I just, uh, the, the grace of God has been so real in my life because people that I thought would never speak to me again um, are, are now my friends again. The best man in my wedding, I went to high school with him. I was best man in his wedding, he my first wedding. And and I I couldn't I just couldn't he'd call me after all everything happened I couldn't I couldn't talk to him I couldn't I didn't want to see him um, and finally three years ago three years ago he was he was in the area where I lived and 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 finally I saw him and it just broke me because he's he loves me in spite of me. He knew at the same time, and he heard what I what I had gone through and, and how I had to, what I needed to do. 
Um, so. Uh, I have a question about how pastors or people in leadership, uh, you found the best way for them to stay accountable. Is it a small group or because pastors need alone time to study and and do their thing with their wives. And so sometimes you wonder what's going on over there. What's what do you think is the best way for a pastor to be held accountable or anyone in leadership? Well, the Calvary Chapel model, you have how many pastors in this church? About four. Those pastors should hold each other accountable. Those pastors should ask tough questions. They should say, how's your marriage? I mean, tough questions. That's how I would do it within this church. For me, when, when, I mean, what happened was I lost accountability because I, I went to a, I changed churches and I didn't build within it a body of men that I, that I met with on a regular basis. I always had that everywhere else. For me, it was uh, Tuesday morning, six o'clock at Sherry's restaurant. That was it. Every, every Tuesday. And that, that, and, and they weren't, one of them was an elder in my church. The rest weren't. They were just godly men. And we held each other accountable. I mean, pastoring is a lonely job, man. I, it's lonely out there. Uh, and, and, and a lot of pastors don't want accountability. That's, that's a big problem today. You know, I can stand up here and talk about moral problems in the church. There are pastors in churches today that ought to be removed because they have no accountability. It isn't just moral failure. It's a lot of things. And they have no business pastoring either because there's no accountability. Excuse me. Don't you think that it's very important, period, the communication that you have with the Lord yourself personally, but whether you're a pastor or not, you need to have that communication day in, day out, never stop, never let up, constantly. And that'll keep you on guard, too. You bet. Yes, I mean, that, that's your main accountability is to the Lord. But, see, the Lord also uses people. It's, uh, yeah, I, I, daily in the Word, daily in prayer. Yeah, that's, that's a key. Yeah. Um, I have a question that it's kind of baffling with a lot of people, and you touched on it earlier. It says the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. So, someone can make an argument, well, I've repented. Mm -hmm. And it's always hard for you to argue against that. Mm -hmm. Well, how do you know I haven't repented? And um, and so that they can say, well, I've repented. That's a prerequisite. And since the gifts and the callings of God are irrevocable, therefore, I can continue on in my merry way. I if I said it, I wasn't clear. Clear. The calling of God is not irrevocable. Because okay, so, okay. I started out by saying, ministry is a calling that God gives, and He can take it as fast as He gave it if He chooses. And if there's sin in our lives, if there's sin in a pastor's life, uh, it's, it's God's choice to take it. I don't care what the gifts are. Uh, not even necessarily if there's repentance. I, I think that there are times where there can be no restoration to pulpit ministry. Period. Can there be restoration to ministry? Yes. Can there, is, again, is there forgiveness? Yes. But God might choose never to restore that person to the pulpit again. That's His call. And, and that person, in my, in my opinion, has no right to whine before God and say, or for that matter, other people and say, I, well, I've repented, I've repented. See, I think a sign 
for me. A sign for me that true repentance hasn't taken place is the person who continues to ask for restoration. That's my personal opinion. I had to stop and just let it run its course. Because I love doing this. But see, I can't do it anymore. And I've accepted that. I mean, my, my, like I said, my denomination, I was offered a church. I, I can't, my feeling is, is God is going to have to use me and God will use me in other means, but standing behind a pulpit Sunday after Sunday is over with for me. I know that forgiveness is different than trust. Mm -hmm. What are some of the means that you used to gain back trust from your peers, your children, your wife, and the community that was so damaged by what Mm -hmm. you did? Mm -hmm. Um, Persistence. Um, Consistency. With my children, it was consistency. Not having expectations, not having any motives. There's another to me. That's just another dead sign that it's not repentance if you have a motive. I mean, I all I knew, and all I went with to the people that I hurt, whether it be people in my former church, my ex-wife, or my children, either verbally or by written letter, I sought forgiveness expecting nothing in return. Because they didn't owe me a thing. That's, I mean, that's what I felt. I, I, if they refused to forgive me, that, that's a problem between them and God. But as far as owing me, no. They didn't owe me anything. I mean, I was wrong. I mean, I, I, I've told, you know, if, if God... I love my wife right now. I do. She's a wonderful woman. But you know, I'll tell you, and I told her this, if God were to say, Bob, I'll give you one wish, I'd say, God, take me back 17 years ago. Please, just take me back 17 years ago. Knowing what I know now. Yes. I just want to try to get something straight. Uh, <laughs> just in my mind. I'm not being straight. <laughs> well, well, it's straight, but it's confusing to me, so... Um, you talked about being able to lose the calling, um, but not the gift. And then you also talked about um, being a worker of for Satan, I guess. At one point, you, you talked about that. And I guess my question is, do you feel like if you would have stayed in the ministry through, or or if you would have been preaching from a pulpit, before you felt restoration was complete, do you think you would have been a worker of Satan? Or, you know, Paul says, Paul says in Philippians, I believe it's the second chapter, some preach Christ out of contempt, but nevertheless he's being preached. God will be glorified. God's not going to be mocked. You can have some sinner behind this pulpit who doesn't know God, but knows the Word of God. He can stand up here and preach the Word of God and not believe a thing he's saying, and people can still come forward because the Holy Spirit and God will not be mocked, and God will say, I don't care what he feels, I only know what I can do. Should that person be up here? No way. Absolutely. No way. Should I have stood behind a pulpit and used the gifts that God had given me, living in sin? No. Well, that would have been blasphemous. And the two months I did it were blasphemous. I detest that part of my life. I had no business being there. Was God ministered to through what I said? Was, was His Word as I proclaimed it? Did it minister to the lives of people? Yes, because it was His Word, not mine. I, I don't mean to be yelling at you. <laughs> it's, 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 just, it's just the passion in me. I think you answered my question completely. Thank you. <laughs> As Christians, we're 
we're told how to handle these things within the, the church mm-hmm. and believing that in the new covenant, the church is the body of Christ mm-hmm. and the members make up the church rather than the building. Um, when you take the sin to the individual and then um, they don't repent, mm-hmm. um, you take some witnesses mm-hmm. and they don't repent. Mm-hmm. You take it to leadership mm-hmm. and they don't repent. Right. Um, it says to have no part with them. Um, and even though we're not in a building and um, those of us who have had pastors do this um, and they may be, be in a, may be in a congregation elsewhere, do you believe that that scripture still applies? And would you have expected that um, if you had not chosen to be repentant in action, thought, and deed? Yeah. Yeah. Those are scriptural grounds and you laid it out perfectly what should be done. And if there's no repentance in that person, and, you know, the word that a lot of people use in, in among the Amish and stuff is shunned. Catholics say excommunicated. Yeah, I, I believe that that needs to be practiced. I think it's a biblical principle. And the problem is it isn't done enough. Okay, I'm getting hungry here. <laughs> I haven't eaten since 6 o'clock this morning. Well, I can hear that again. Oh. I like your points on restoration. Is there any points for the homeless here? For the homeless? Well, I think God calls us to love the homeless. I think God calls us to, to help the poor feed the, the hungry. I think that's a, that's a calling of the church and certainly a calling for Christians. Yes, ma'am. Wait, 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 wait. You don't have the mic. Um, You said before that you left the pulpit and the congregants, some of them didn't even know why you left. They did. They did. If I inferred that, I'm sorry. Oh, okay. I I mean, I did not stand up and confess my sin, but when, when when I resigned publicly and left, obviously the elders had to inform the people why. Okay, if if more sin is uncovered, do you feel that the congregants have a right to know or should it just be kept um, silent since they know one of your sins? Is that enough? You know, I... I mean, because a lot of people will leave a church in a fog thinking that they understand the full scope of what the sin was and not really knowing the true story. That you know what that's that is a fine line. I, I putting my when I used to be a pastor hat on me for a moment, having had to deal with that on other issues when I was in ministry. There there are some things that I, I think only the pastoral staff or elders needed to know, and to get into the sordid details of sin doesn't help anybody. Sin is sin, and and to have it to have to have anybody explain to you what, okay, let me tell you this is what did on this that that doesn't do anybody any good. Sin is sin, wrong is wrong. It needs to be called that, and dealt with that, and sometimes the pastors or elders of a church, the best thing they can do is keep their mouths closed, unless. I mean, there are always exceptions, and I can see there could always. I'm not going to make that a ironclad statement because. Well, I'll just stop at that. It's probably the best. I'm I'm interested in what made you come to the point where you wanted to change your behavior that you wanted to stop? The there there came a time where it was just increasingly difficult to live with myself because I had the 
knowledge. Whoever brought that up before. I had all this knowledge in my head and knew how wrong it was. And uh, I, I, I would attribute it to just the, the, the working of the Holy Spirit. And, you know, Bob, it's, it's time to get a grip here. And uh, and turn things around, you know, and and again that there there a lot of it was so much shame after the fact. Even when I came to that point in my life, I just and, and that's that reproach. That's what Proverbs talks about. That shame is always there. And I know there are psychologists out there in the psychobabble. I went to a counselor once, and he gave me this book about wiping shame out. Uh, and see, my problem is if I wipe all the shame out of my life for what I did, there's a fear I might do it again. Now, that, that's, that's anti-psychology. That's anti-self-esteem. But that's what I feel. Okay, that it? I'll do that. Let's pray. Gracious Father, I do thank You for this wonderful time with this group of people tonight, Lord. And I, I just pray that there would have been something that I shared, Lord, that would be able to minister to needs that are here. Now, Lord, You know. And I just commit the ministry of this church to You. I commit the men who who uh, are the pastors of this church, Father, for Denny. I just uplift. I've never met Denny, but Father, I pray for your, your blessing on he and the rest of the staff that they would take these people to the direction that you want to take them, dear God. So just empower this church to have a ministry and to continue the ministry in Grant's Pass. Lord, just thank you again. In Jesus' name, amen.